But even if we don't have that, even if numbers in the industry are miraculously equal with every other ethnicity, if, if all ethnicities are equally represented in Hollywood, would Femme Frontera cease to exist? No, because just as we started, we're celebrating our stories. We're not just back here fighting and, you know, trying to fight the good fight. We're celebrating what we do and with a lot of happiness and hope and love for our region. But we're also just people sharing stories. Hello, everybody. My name is Pearl Owen, and I am this week's host of The Follow, a multicultural podcast from creative agency Sanders Wingo. We talk to up and coming BIPOC creators, movement makers and thought leaders who we follow. You may not know some of our influencers, but we think you should. We talked to them about their work, worldview, and how they use their platform. We want all of us to get smarter about culture. Today, we're talking to Angie Reza Turis, a filmmaker and such a beautiful spirit. She grew up along the U.S.-Mexico border and is the founder of Fem Frontera Filmmaker Showcase, which advocates for the amplification of films made by women from border regions across the globe. She talks about the complexities of border identities, how our own vocabulary is falling short in expressing how people identify themselves, and why representation of Mexican-American communities and communities of color generally in film is so important. Now, here's Angie. Angie, it is a privilege to get to talk to you, and I'd love for you to just introduce yourself a little bit to us. Tell us a little bit about, you know, yourself and your background and where you're from and what you do. Again, thank you so much for having me. It's really nice to be here and to speak about my work and, and Femme Frontera. So thank you for the opportunity. My name is Angie Reza Turris. I am a filmmaker and the exec- executive director of Femme Frontera, which is a film organization located in El Paso, Texas. We serve the U.S.-Mexico border region community most especially from El Paso, Las Cruces, and Ciudad Juarez. And we started in August of 2016, where we had a film festival that spotlighted works made from women who live and work on the border. And my film was part of that lineup, and we called it the Femme Frontera Filmmaker Showcase. And luckily, we had a fantastic turnout and the feedback that we should continue to do this and take it on the road. And at that point, it was just really good timing in regards to the rhetoric that was being spewed (laughs) around um, about border communities and immigrants and the like. And so we serendipitously had a lineup that tackled all issues about the border. And so instead of being a celebration, it became a mission to try to dispel a lot of the stereotypes of this region and of border communities and of immigrants and of gender roles and the LGBTQ community. So we became staunch advocates for our own way of life. And so that is how we started the whole thing. And now we are in our sixth season coming up here for the festival, but we also run educational programs and take the showcase on tour around the country and around the world. And we provide screenwriting and filmmaking grants to women and non-binary folks in this region. So it's quite a privilege to be so much a part of this community storytelling. 
let's let's go back for just a second to the region, you know, to where you are from geographically. For people that aren't that familiar with where El Paso, Texas is, how do you describe the geographic location and what it's like to live in this region? Yeah, well, thank you for that question. I don't think I've ever been asked that before. So El Paso is the furthest west that you can go in Texas. We're right on the border again with New Mexico and with Mexico. I mean, literally, we're all, the three of us are on top of each other. If you stand in the middle, you can't really tell which is which. I mean, these days you can tell a little bit more because now there's a huge, massive gate that separates the two countries. But prior to that, I mean, it was mostly the river or just a very invisible dividing line. And it was beautiful because, you know, growing up El Paso and Juarez, just, you know, for me, I had so much family in both communities and would go seamlessly over the border like it was no big deal. And so would my family. And the cohesion between both communities was just so easy. In the end, you know, we're going to realize that we're a lot more similar than, than we are different. And my hope is, especially being from this region and so closely connected to the community, is that in the end, we, we really all do want the same thing. It's just such a weird place that we're trying to get there. Talk to me a little bit about how you define yourself. Do you define yourself as Latina, Latinx? I know in the Texas Monthly article, you use the terminology brown person. So talk to me a little bit about what language you use. I think if you had asked me that, you know, even a year ago, I would have, I, I've always sort of identified as Mexican American, but I, you know, especially being an activist, I have to keep up with and stay up to date on, you know, identities and, and how people are identifying and how colonialism has influenced certain identities. But recently I heard, you know, you're not Mexican American, you're American, you were born on this side, you're just American. And your, your ancestry is Mexican. And then I, I heard that Latinx is no longer a good umbrella term because, you know, there's such a huge diaspora and it tends to leave people out. And all of these arguments are super valid, but it's kind of made me a little confused as to what my identity should be, maybe. But I, you know, ancestrally speaking, I'm Mexican. I am Persian. I am Native American. I am Indigenous Mexican. I have a lot of beautiful ancestry that I'm enormously proud of, but I think that I identify most with Mexican American culture and most with El Paso culture specifically, even though I lived in San Francisco for 12 years. I, I'm, I'm very much San Francisco now too. So I'm such a mesh. And to be able to claim a certain identity, even for me, seems very strange these days. So yeah, that's my very long and non-answer to your question. Maybe vocabulary, you know, our ability to communicate isn't keeping up with the way that we feel these days, you know, our vocabulary is falling short. So what does it mean when you say I'm Mexican American? Talk to me a little bit about what that means to you and what you think that tells the world about you. Ooh, that's a good question. Mexican American, I think I identify most with that because I was raised in both cultures. You know, I mean, I, I would say that my childhood was comprised of 50% El Paso and 50% Juarez. And, and I think that just even subconsciously, 
I'm very much both. Yeah, and and I, I think when you were saying um, Mexican American and fifty fifty, and that's how you grew up. I think we we've done other other informal interviews with people from El Paso, and I think it's the first time ever. And, and the work that we do on culture that I, I asked someone, you know, where are you from? You know, where did you grow up? And most people say, oh, you know, even I grew, grew up in Mexico until I was eight. You know, th- like there's this moment. And, and the answer was, you know, I asked them, where did you grow up? And they answered, well, Monday through Friday in El Paso, you know, <laughs> but then, the, you know, the Saturday and Sunday, what is? And so it's just mind blowing. I think for people that aren't familiar with what it's like to live on a border, that fluidity and that 50-50 and the literally dividing your your life or the way you define where you come from by the days of the week is really something special and unique to to border culture. So I can see where, you know, all that uniqueness kind of took a while to really appreciate and understand for yourself even as you as you got away from the border and then realized what it meant. It's hard to see it sometimes when you're in it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I, I really love how you describe it. You know, it is, it is very difficult. And it's also very beautiful, right? When you are amongst people of color and have been your entire life, of course, there's there's nothing different about you. And of course, you know, people of color hold jobs as lawyers and doctors and CEOs and business owners. But in San Francisco, it was so shocking because, you know, the majority of Latin folks that I saw were you know, in sort of your stereotypical roles that you see on film or on TV, you know, because they they were kind of pushed there. It wasn't that they, you know, lack the skills to move up. That was, of course, never the case. And that's where I feel like a lot of media influences how people see other people, right? It's like, well, on TV, I only see you know, Latinas is made. So obviously in real life, we're just going to hire you as a maid because that's all that you really do, right? And then if media being reflected back to people as well, it's it's similar. It's like, well, if you only see yourself in certain roles, it's hard to see yourself pushing beyond that. It's sort of hard to stretch yourself beyond these these cultural stereotypes. So that's why media is so insanely important. And thankfully, you know, when I graduated from the University of San Francisco with a degree in media studies, I mean, that's very much what I studied was all of the influence that media has and can have on a single individual and on a society as a whole. It's it's enormously powerful. And has your border upbringing and your identity as a Mexican-American filmmaker always been part of your work? Or talk, talk to me a little bit about how your border upbringing comes across in your art. I mean, I had not really played with any of that until I moved back to El Paso in 2011. Prior to that, all the films that I'd made, the majority were for socially conscious businesses and organizations. That was my job in the Bay Area, um, but I did a lot of that freelance. And so I made micro documentaries for these organizations. And then I, I would help on Friends Productions, but I never really did anything, I don't think, what some would consider explicitly, you know, cultural-based. I think that it just comes out because it's just part of my identity and I don't necessarily have to think about it. It just kind of happens. 
I came back in 2011, but then in, in 2015, I created a film called Memory Box. And I somewhat consciously, somewhat unconsciously integrated a lot of Mexican-American elements. I didn't necessarily do it because I said, well, I'm Mexican-American. I have to make a Mexican-American film. Here it is. <laughs> it was just more like, oh, hey, it would, wouldn't it be really cool if A, B, and C, and then it became a film. And then all of a sudden it was like, oh, you have like, it's a ton of, of Mexican, there's a ton of Mexican-American culture in there. For listeners that may not know Memory Box, it is a story around the Day of the Dead, right? And a young woman's kind of return to, you know, the way she exited this life and some discomfort she has about just unresolved issues that she's experiencing on Day of the Dead as her family grieves her and celebrates her. Is that accurate? Yeah, I love your description. <laughs> it's way better than I would have given. From an outside perspective, it feels like it's like a thousand percent about Mexican-American culture. So it's surprising that to you, you almost kind of like kind of fell into it accidentally. It feels like you were, you, you know, it feels like it is a thousand percent about that. Mm-hmm. Well, it is. It, it is. And, and I mean, it wasn't totally subconscious. I, I knew that that there were elements there that I really wanted to bring in, but it was more like well, I, you know, I'm familiar with Day of the Dead. I have celebrated Day of the Dead. I know that I'm doing this sort of coming of age after death story. And I, I did pull a lot of it from my Mexican uncle who um, had died very suddenly months before we started filming. Oh, and so the, the film was in some... Um, and so you can't help... But like, I couldn't have told that story without integrating his culture and my culture and our family ties and our family bonds. And so, you know, I mean, it's an interesting concept. It's like when people make films to, I mean, I, I guess it's it's in the eye of the beholder, right? And, you know, if I think that those of us who are of color just make films you know, to us, we're just making a film. And, you know, people who, as you said, who are outsiders who see the film might interpret as, oh, this is a black film. This is an Asian film. This is a Mexican film. This is a Spanish speaking film, you know, and they were very conscious about making it. So, whereas we're just like, we're just making a film, man. (laughs) I I don't, I don't know what you're talking, you know. That's a great Um, that's a great point. And <laughs> first, I'm, I'm very sorry for the loss of your uncle. Oh, thank you. You know, makes the, me- the movie even more meaningful to understand the, the influence of it. But thinking it over, you're totally right. Like the film is, as you say, just c- coming of age after death, you know, and what could happen to any of us if we're gone in a moment, you know, and kind of heighten the analysis of how we're living our life today and how we're leaving things with people we love. It just happens to be told through the story of the day of the dead. You're right. There is, it is kind of like the inverse is also true. It's just coincidentally in the setting, but these are universal global themes. You know, we always hope for, I think, is that, you know, if we do integrate parts of our culture, that it's not seen as this different space, but it's understood as a space for connection and for empathy and for mutual understanding and for relatability, because it is, you know, even if it's a different way than, than maybe you 
everybody understands grief. Everybody understands, you know, everyone has a ritual for how they deal with grief. And, you know, I think that Mexican culture has one of the most beautiful ways of celebrating it. I mean, what a concept, right? To, to celebrate death as just another part of life. And so, you know, in a way, it's just more of a beautiful send-off. It's more of, a, of an homage. And that was my way of, of dealing with it. And so, you know, yes, I mean, th there were definitely cultural aspects of that film that were very deliberate on my part, but it was also, you know, again, finding this space to connect with the audience. You know, thinking about that film and, you know, t talk to us a little bit about its relationship to, you know, Femme Frontera and the creation of this showcase. Can you, can you talk to us a little bit about why that was created or, you know, what inspired the, the showcase? Yeah, so, I mean, I had just finished Memory Box and I thought, you know, I really want to premiere it for friends and family, but it would be kind of awkward, you know, to just have a big party for a 15-minute film and it just like just my film. So I called a bunch of friends, you know, whom I had a tremendous amount of respect for as filmmakers and as friends and asked if they'd be willing to screen their films alongside mine. I hadn't seen their films. I didn't know what they were about. I was like, let's just do this. You know, we'll just make it a big celebration of women filmmakers on the border. Well, like I said before, I mean, thematically, they all worked perfectly together. And again, it was just by chance and it, it was a very powerful evening of shorts and so you know and then taking it on tour and then got a lot of press for it and I mean it was it was a beautiful wild ride it still is you know but we weren't familiar with other showcases or other filmmakers or other film festivals you know taking showcases on the road and you know, for us, again, it, it was just really good timing to be able to take a showcase like that at a time when, you know, we were being demonized here on the border as sort of an antithesis to what was being said. So that really inspired and continues to inspire the work that we do. Tell me more about border women, you know. It, I know the film, you know, Femme Frontera began that way with your with your collaborators the first year. I, I, from what I understand, it's expanded. But talk to me about border women and women that live, especially at the border with Mexico and Texas. Are they different in any way? You know, what? talk to us a little bit about, you know, border culture and what it's like to be a woman from a frontera. Yeah, I mean, it's it's hard to answer because I it's going to be different for every woman living on the border, depending on their experiences, you know. And I think that if there's anything that I want people to understand and take away after watching our showcases, it's that it is very com complex. There's no one way to describe a border woman or a border community or a single immigrant. You know, we're not all a certain way and we don't even share similar experiences, just depending on what someone has versus what someone doesn't versus the situation, you know, we are a very complex, complete whole city, El Paso and Juarez, just like every other city in the world, which is why it's also so heartbreaking to hear so many horrible things about Juarez, because it's not this, you know, war-torn landscape. I mean, it's, it's a very beautiful place, as is El Paso. I mean, 
you know, they each have wealthy neighborhoods and each have impoverished neighborhoods and each have somewhere in between and each are complicated and complex and have, you know, communities with beautiful, strong family ties and communities that, you know, are are being torn down and demonized and shunned because of, you know, because the residents perhaps don't have the same resources that the rest of the cities do. And, and you can find that everywhere, right? So I think each person's experience is is always going to be unique. My own living on the border is, is also very complex. I mean, I lived here until I was 18. And then I left to San Francisco from, you know, age 18 to age 30. And then I have been in El Paso again ever since. And now I'm 40. I've experienced El Paso very differently in each of those stages and phases. Mm-hmm. For me, the past 10 years, I am more in love with this region than I ever have been. I still don't completely entirely understand it. I'm learning new things about it every day, especially as an adult. And it it also changes in, in ways that I could never have foreseen, but I could have also never for, have foreseen how badly demonized and hurt and crushed we would be as a people within the past five years. So right now it's a place of healing is how I would describe it. And People in this community are incredibly strong. The women, it, it is a very matriarchal community, but I'm also going to go on a big limb here and also say that it can be a very sexist community and by the matriarchs. <laughs> um, and so, you know, and, and not to blame them. I mean, this is very systemic and it starts with the patriarchy. But some of the most sexist things I've ever heard have been from from women in this community. So it's just so complex. And I, I just hope that we can discuss some of the elephants in the room one day. And I think that's what Femme Frontera does, actually. You know, whenever we have a showcase, I mean, we bring in all the elephants and we kind of put them up on a screen and say, okay, let's have a dialogue now, you know. We're not going to be hiding behind anything, but the elephants aren't always bad. A lot of them are very beautiful and are also things that I think we take for granted that are gorgeous in this city and that are special about this city. So as as long as we can continue pointing at those, we'll continue to do so. You know, you were talking earlier about images missing from culture that represent all the complexities that you're talking about become very one-dimensional and limiting. So why is it that we are in, I like to say 2020,000, you know, like we are, we are in a very, should be a very evolved state of human existence. And why are these stories still not told about Hispanic culture, about Mexican-American people? Why do you need a Femme Frontera to get these stories to the surface? At the heart of the problem? God, I, isn't that the question? You can point to so many things. And you can also point to studies that have been done about the lack of representation. And if anyone really wants to go down that rabbit hole, USC Annenberg conducted a study that's beautiful in in regards to how extensive it is. It's a really wonderful in-depth study of disturbing news, you know, of, of the lack of representation of our people in media and TV and film. 
you know, for us, we're trying to just get the stories out there. We're not, you know, I mean, how do we burst through the mainstream? How do we burst onto Hollywood is the next biggest question. You know, right now, Femme Frontera operates on still kind of a very grassroots level. You know, we're, we're still small. We're, we're an, an organization that has become what it's become because of the support from not only the community in this region, but also organizations and foundations outside who also understand the lack of Latinx representation in, in the industry. And so as long as we continue having that, we're going to continue to fight for it. But even if we don't have that, even if numbers in the industry are miraculously equal with every other ethnicity, if, if all ethnicities are equally represented in Hollywood, would Femfrontera cease to exist? No, because just as we started, we're celebrating our stories. We're not just back here fighting and, you know, trying to fight the good fight. We're celebrating what we do and, and with a lot of happiness and hope and love for our region. But we're also just people sharing stories. We're just people. And what is Femme Frontera's focus now? I mean, I know it has evolved. Talk to us a little bit about the evolution of, you know, who it was for and about at its founding and what who and for it's about now. We continue to appreciate the fact that we can, that our stories reflect back to the people who watch them, I think, in our region. Predominantly, the filmmakers in our showcases are of Latinx descent, but not exclusively. And we don't ever want to be exclusive to just one culture. Um, all of us can relate to other border communities around the world. And it's very important to show how similar we are to all of those other communities and how we stand in solidarity with them, even though our experiences can be entirely different. And it's very important for us to show that to our own border community, but also, again, for our community's reflection to be brought back to them on screen. It's, it's so important for people to see themselves and to feel represented. And at the same time, you know, we, we take the whole showcase on tour for very good reason. You know, there's not a lot of Latinx films uh, being shown anywhere. And so the Q&As, especially pre-pandemic, when we're actually in person, the Q&As were always the most important part because we had a lot of people who would just outright tell us we had no idea. You know, we had no idea this was happening. We had no idea even, you know, how many biases we had about Latinx culture or about Muslim culture or about, you know, different, I mean, Black Latinx culture too is extremely lacking. So th there's just so many elements that are so important. And so, you know, I don't think that there ever won't be a need for continuing to share these stories and get them out there. And with any luck, we will get more and more and more of these stories into the mainstream. But I, I think I think it is really hard for Latinx people to get out into the mainstream. I think there's a lot of complexities because there are white passing Latinx, because brown and black Latinx stories tend to get pushed down. The representation can be there, but not completely there. And it's very complex. And I think that even us at Femme Frontera, we're trying to understand how all of that works and, and what the feelings are toward a lot of that and why 
our stories continue to not be pushed in the industry and, and, and continue to not be shared. And we see a little bit of progress and then it goes away. <laughs> and then we see a little bit and then it kind of fizzles. So we have a long road ahead. I guess maybe in the last couple of years, you have gotten some support from the Ford Foundation. What, what are some other organizations that you would love to see supporting Femme Frontera or feel like have a role there? We had been dreaming of Sundance for a long time. You know, we wanted to either figure out a way to collaborate or, you know, some sort of, of way that, that we could start working together. And we happened a few months ago to be invited to submit for an arts organization grant that they have. And so we received the news about three weeks ago that we received it. Oh, congratulations. Thank you. Um, So that's a dream come true. (laughs) And that is going to plant the seeds for our border filmmaking lab. And then we, we also received a grant very recently from the Perspective Fund in New York who are helping us expand our documentary education programming. And so that was extremely lucky and exciting as well. Are fiscally sponsored at the moment. We were told that we need to go ahead and move on to becoming our own 501c3 to hopefully get further opportunities. You know, we would love to work with uh, the National Endowment for the Arts, the MacArthur Foundation. Are there any brands or anything like that out in the world that you think, other than, you know, nonprofit foundations that you think could support or should partner with Femfontera? Well, Array Media, I will say, mm-hmm. Array Media would be mm-hmm. a dream come true to work with Ava DuVernay. Um, mm-hmm. You know, we are very inspired by them as a whole and what they do for the Black community. We want to do the same for our community out here and, and for all people of color in our region. Firelight Media is another beautiful organization that we have collaborated with in the past on you know very very small scales we would love to actually work in tandem with them on something we're extremely lucky that a lot of the dreams that we've had have come into fruition or are just a couple steps away the support has been so beautiful and we're so grateful i, I can't even Describe how grateful I am for the support that we've been receiving. And, and I do know that it's not guaranteed and it's a blessing every day. That's wonderful. You mentioned, you know, some of the funding, possibly going to a border filmmaking lab. I've had the privilege of watching some of those films and they really are amazing, you know, thinking that they were just there for such a brief moment making films, but they are amazing quality films. What do you see in these young border filmmakers that either connects back to, you know, the way you saw yourself growing up along the border or is different? How, how does what you see coming out of their work, do you, do you relate it at all to your own upbringing and childhood along the border or not? Yes and no. I, the, the opportunities that a lot of these instructors, because we, we've since we've received Ford support, we've been able to bring in a lot more instructors who are giving, you know, I only know documentary. So for a long time, it was only a documentary, but we have animation now and narrative and higher levels of of other kinds of filmmaking. And, you know, for me, it's exciting to see these kids excited about opportunities like this, which I never had 
growing up. In that respect, it's very exciting just to be like, man, these kids, they're really excited about what it is they're about to learn and they're passionate about it and they're committed. I don't know that I had that level of commitment as a teenager. These kids come in and they know about the world and they know about how it works and they're just so beyond their ages. And these are eight, nine, 10 year olds. And even my daughter knows an incredible amount, not only about the world, but also about technology. And, you know, so I, I just taught a class of eight to 11 year olds and taught them how to shoot and how to edit. And they ran with it and did things with both that I didn't even know you could do using the technology. So they're, they're incredibly impressive in that way. And then they, they make social justice themed films. You know, they, they, they see through a social justice lens, which is amazing to me, which, yeah, I, I never thought of, you know, as a kid. At the same time, you asked about, do I relate to their border experience? There's been a lot of kids who I have also taught in South El Paso who are very open and allow themselves to be very vulnerable about their stories. I, you know, I can't relate to that. I'm I'm not an immigrant. I, I was born in El Paso and grew up in El Paso just going over to Juarez to, to visit family. I don't know what it's like to live in Juarez and come to El Paso to visit family. Even though we had several family members from Juarez do that, you know, I never spoke to them about their experiences. And, and I don't know what those are like. And, and some, you know, have had, you know, no problem. And some have had a lot of, you know, struggle coming back and forth. It just depends on the individual. So the fact that you know, we, we create a safe space for these young kids to share whatever experiences that they want is really meaningful to us. And to see the kids being willing to share so much is quite a thing. I mean, they're, they're very courageous, but they're also, I almost feel like courage is the wrong word because they just, again, you know, they, they don't, they don't label their experiences all the time as good or bad. It's just their experiences and they want to share them. And so it's up to us to just kind of shut up and listen and not label their experiences either. Now that we have the children showcase and we're able to show the work from these young kids during our film festival season, it's really incredible. And I think that this year in particular, people are going to be absolutely blown away because the content coming from the kids this season is incredibly deep and powerful. And these are from the eight-year-old kids too. And we don't tell them, okay, this is the theme. We give them the tools and we give them the skills to tell a story. And then they go out and they choose it and we don't hold them back. And it's, it's also a testament to the parents because I'm a parent too. And kids need safe spaces to feel like they can tell their stories, but they also have to feel supported by the people watching their stories. And this community has really come through in that way. Do you see young border filmmakers navigating their identities differently or in any way? It sounds like you're saying that they're just feel like it's a part of the conversation and, you know, comfortable talking about it. Or is there anything else about the way you see them navigating their, you know, their duality or their different cultural influences? It's different. I think that social media has actually played a pretty big role in these kids' lives in regards to, again, like either helping them step into their power of, of their identity or making them shame it. From what I've seen, a lot of these kids are very comfortable with who they are. And, you know, it's not even 
cultural identity that they're comfortable with, but it's also, you know, LGBTQ plus identity. It's also non-binary identity. It's also, you know, all of these things. And so for me, it's, again, I, I, I credit our instructors for creating such safe environments as well. But, you know, we're not creating a safe environment for the, pur- for the purpose of then throwing these films kids up on a big screen and exploiting that. We're very explicit with the kids and the parents that it's up to them if they want to take the next step and show these films. They don't have to show them to anybody. They don't even have to talk about it. You know, it's, it's whatever space that they feel comfortable being in. But I think that because a lot of our kids, from what I've seen, are so knowledgeable now about the world and about politics and about divisions and all of these things, they absolutely want to be part of the conversation, not just part of it. They want to lead it. And so I think that their films do that and they, they recognize the power in that and they're not ashamed of it. Do you have any message for border women or female identifying individuals that live on borders? Is there any larger message out there outside of filmmaking that you want to share? That your story matters, your experience matters. And then if you ever want to share it, you're going to find so many more people who find a connection through your experience than you realize. That's beautiful. And, you know, we, we're, our podcast is called The Follow. And so we, we can't end this without asking, who do you follow? I know you mentioned Ada, Ava DuVernay as a huge inspiration. Who else are you following? You know, what, if we wanted to, like, tap into Angie's brain and start following who she's following, <laughs> who, who are some people that are, you know, at the top of your list these days that you're excited about? Oh, man. I am absolutely obsessed right now with the show Blind Spotting. It is a spinoff from the movie Blind Spotting, which I also believe everyone should go and watch right now. But the spinoff is even better, if I can even say that, because it focuses on this woman, Ashley, a single mom living in Oakland. Her boyfriend, Beyonce, has just been incarcerated. And she has to learn how to navigate this world. And I think it is one of the most powerful, innovative insane shows I've ever seen in my life. I mean, I think it nails the experience of being a mom more than I have ever seen anything done. I think that moms also tend to be just this like very one-sided, oversimplified version on on, on TV and, and film. And I this is the first time where I see a show absolutely nail mom's experiences. And so, yeah, I would, I would highly recommend following, I think it's just called Blind Spotting Stars because it's on Stars. That's where you can watch it. Other accounts that I follow, Tabitha Brown is like, <laughs> I love Tab. <laughs> She's so inspirational. Just a few days ago, she was talking about how, you know, people were asking her why she smiles so much. And, you know, she was just saying it's a choice. Like, don't think that I just sort of default to that. You know, I have good and bad experiences like all of you, but, you know, it's a choice. <laughs> and I guess finally, you know, for anybody who wants to follow you, who wants to follow Femme Frontera, who wants to follow any of the other filmmakers, how, how do they follow you? <laughs> how, can we, how can we send followers your way? Oh, thank you. Well, I would say first and foremost, Femme Fem underscore Frontera 
on Instagram or Femme Frontera uh, on Facebook. I can be found at a.tereza, T-U-R-E-Z-A um, on Instagram and then also Angie Reza Torres on Facebook. Thank you, Angie, for being here and taking time to share a little bit of your world with us. And thank you all for listening. Again, my name is Pearl Owen, and you're listening to The Follow, a cultural podcast from creative agency Sanders Wingo. For show notes and links, or to get notified when a new episode comes out, visit thefollowpodcast.com or sanderswingo.com. Check us out on all your favorite podcast platforms, and we hope you join us again.